Hey everyone, Cole Hoopengarner here. Uh, thanks so much for all of your support. We are truly overwhelmed by the number of downloads we've received in such a short period of time, and we can't thank you enough for that. If you're looking for more Aftermath content in between episodes, like artwork and music from episodes, messages from the Shadow Council, and important dates in Aftermath history, be sure to follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at Group Fire Pit, Facebook at www.facebook.com slash group, and Instagram at firepitcreativegroupofficial. Very soon, we'll be conducting an interview and question-and-answer session with me and Warren Davis, the writer of Aftermath and the composer of Aftermath's music. You can submit any questions you have about Aftermath, and we'd love to answer them for you. Send them to us at any of our social media profiles, or you can also email us at firepitcreativegroup at gmail.com. Again, thank you so much for all of your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Fire Pit Creative Group presents Aftermath Episode 15 Threshold Part 2 Phoenix Project Administrator Danielle Devenu reluctantly told the team in the laboratory about the altercation between law enforcement and those in the squalor. She explained that Dr. John Bath's longtime friend and roommate, Mike Helms, was arrested. Mike's pregnant girlfriend, Mindy, was beaten and lay in a coma in the project surgery room. Enraged, John demanded for Devenu to allow him to go to his friends. At General Castro's insistence, Devenu demurred. The laboratory doors closed. John walked swiftly up the ramp with Cuddy close behind him. Hold up a tick, the Major insisted. Bath turned sharply, saw the Major's eyes narrow, his expression fixed in scorn. Bath had seen the look too many times from men of the Major's station. He was about to say something. Then, unexpectedly, Cuddy retreated a little. He seemed to soften. Go help your friends, Cuddy told John sincerely. I'll get to the bottom of this. Bath nodded, but said nothing. He went to the infirmary to check on Mindy. Despite his protestations, he was denied access. A disembodied voice on a loudspeaker insisted the area was under permanent surveillance. This is a matter for the Shadow Council. The voice echoed what Devenu told him earlier, as if this was supposed to satisfy or comfort John. His heart raced, his mind soared. He felt full up of anger, fear, awash with things he, Castro, and Cuddy saw on the desolate surface of the planet, and printed words now etched into his brain, literature both poetic and banal, about another world not his own. 
Realizing he was being watched by pinhole cameras, swiveling monitors, perhaps even the Law Division's spies, Bath retreated towards his quarters. John's pace slowed when he saw his student and protege, Harumi Gale, standing outside his apartment, talking to a tall man. Harumi looked up at the man Bath did not recognize. She nodded. The man smiled at Harumi, glanced over at John as he approached, and walked away. Who is that? Bath asked. Harumi swallowed hard. No one. She focused intently on her teacher. Where have you been? Bath stood, arms akimbo. You know about Mike? Mindy? I've been looking for you, Harumi nodded. Security rousted the squalor. They came in with full armor and stun batons, went to work on everyone, dragged them to holding. They took prisoners. It was awful, John. Bath glanced around, wondering who was watching them. He touched Harumi's soft arm below the shoulder and walked her over to the wall. Why? Why did they do this? Why? Harumi swatted a lock of hair out of her eyes. Because they could. Where's Mike? Bath asked. There was a meeting, and... The younger Asian woman was usually highly articulate. Something had distracted her, John thought. Something other than what happened to Mike and Mindy. Do you know Maricela, the lunch lady? Harumi asked. Bath shrugged. You mean the old lady from the cafeteria? Harumi nodded. John, don't be so naive. Bath paused. In that moment, he realized his trusted student and would-be lover confirmed Maricela Santiago was the leader of the dissidents in the Phoenix Project. The lunch lady organized those opposed to the Central Processor and the Shadow Council, and Professor Rumi Gale was one of them. So it's true. Bath lowered his voice. He felt his pulse race, as if he was back inside the transference coffin, his consciousness idly waiting to be beamed through the green stream, uploaded into his simulacrum. Harumi pressed her lips together tightly, neither confirming nor denying her involvement with the dissidents. You asked about Mike and Mindy. I understand Mindy's in the infirmary, but she's in a coma, John said. He closed his eyes for a moment, remembering not long ago when Mike asked his help in terminating Mindy's pregnancy. As much as they may have wanted a child, or been proper parents, the central processor forbade maintenance workers such as Mike and Mindy from cohabitating, or procreating. This angered John, but he was distracted by his responsibilities in the laboratory, exploring the surface of the earth above. The most help he could be was to seek out the assistance of his own mentor, Dean Catherine Rand, the head of the Phoenix Project's academy. John thought that if anyone could pull strings, appeal to the Shadow Council, it was Rand. She was one of the oldest living members of the project, and she had a way of convincing people to do what she wanted, especially John. John? Harumi reached up, touched Bath's unshaven cheek, bringing him back to the present. Are you all right? Mindy, John said, then inhaled deeply. She lost the baby? Yes. And Mike? John asked. Harumi glanced down the corridor. The lunch lady and the dissidents forced that bitch in law enforcement to release the prisoners. Mike's probably in the infirmary with Mindy. Bath shook his head. He felt Harumi reach out, taking his hand in hers. Here, 
she said. Come with me. You shouldn't be alone. Bath nodded and walked with his student away from there. He felt wired, restless, most of all, helpless. General Castro had always been taught to keep his back straight, whether sitting or standing. Yet poor sleep, coupled with the unfamiliar sensations of the green stream transference system, had drained the general of his already atrophied strength, and he found himself struggling to maintain proper composure in his ill-fitting wheelchair. He drew a long sip of the brown liquid that passed for coffee in the Phoenix Project. He doubted an actual coffee bean had ever been within a mile of the brew, but the synthetic caffeine was potent enough, and he had certainly drank worse. He held the info pad in his aching hands, poring over the files that had been provided for his review, looking for something, anything, that could give him an advantage in leading his team. He watched Administrator Danielle Devenu, Chief Surgeon Miral Ganaya, and Engineer Donna Chang work. They spoke to each other minimally. Their relationship was professional, nothing more. How long will the upgrades take? Castro asked Danielle, Miral, and Donna. A few hours, Chang replied. She continued working furtively. That's all? Swift work, Castro said, satisfied. Good, good. He turned his attention back to Ganaya, watching her tired but handsome face contort. There was something distantly familiar, too familiar about her. When Castro was a soldier, his country and Ganaya's had been enemies. But here, in this dismal, subterranean place, he felt a connection to Meryl. She showed him a kindness and concern he rarely felt from any woman, even his long-suffering wife who was now deceased. Ganaya was authentic, a master in her field who cared genuinely, practiced her trade with authority, but without the ambition exhibited by Devenu and Chang, without the unchecked confidence of Major McGillicuddy or the arrogance of Professor Bath. Despite her age and his innate prejudice, General Castro found the doctor exotic, beautiful, but she was different than the others. Castro watched Ganaya speak to Devenu. I'll be back, she told the project administrator. Where are you going? Danielle pulled bright, flowing blonde hair into a ponytail behind her head. I'm the chief of surgery, Danielle, Miral responded seriously. There are still injuries to attend to. Until they go back in the green stream, she glanced over at the general, it would seem I'm needed more in the clinic than I am here. Danielle exhaled hard. Fine, go. If we need you, Ganaya cut her off. I understand, Danielle. Castro's tired eyes focused on the doctor's elegant, olive-skinned hands clutching something above her breast. It was a necklace of some kind. She fingered the chain, then tucked it under her clinical scrubs. But in that moment, Ganaya looked at him, allowing a brief smile. There was something familiar about the amber jewel at the end of the chain, Castro thought, as he watched Ganaya cross the room. When Ganaya had left the laboratory, Castro turned to Danielle. Devenu, if you have a moment. Castro directed the project administrator's attention to files and journal notes spread out across the brushed steel conference table. These personnel files you've given me, they won't do. What do you mean, General? Devenu asked, 
walking to the general's side, away from Dr. Chang. I gave you the central processor's detailed personnel profiles on your team. Castro frowned. Yes, of course. When you introduced me to Cuddy and Bath, you made clear their strengths, their confidences, and insecurities. They didn't appreciate that. I didn't mean to embarrass them, Devenu relented, her blue eyes a shade paler. Of course not. Castro leaned on an elbow. He looked at the lab door, then back at Devenu, his thoughts fixed on Ganaya and the stone hanging from her neck. Castro recognized and remembered it, but was unsure why or how. What was its significance? I... I wanted the personnel files for all of my team, Castro explained. Doctors Chang and Ganaya, and yourself. Danielle shrugged, unsure why Castro was just now requesting this information, or how to proceed. In the weeks since Castro was retrieved from cryostasis and his team's first excursion to the surface, General Castro seemed to accept her authority. Was he now testing his limits? Or hers? Doctors Ganaya and Chang are part of the project team, Devenu explained, but they are not your subordinates. Castro fixed his expression, carefully trying not to give away the source of his interest. I wouldn't presume to give them orders regarding their duties here, underground. But, as mission leader, I understand, the project administrator cut him off. I can approve you for immediate access to level one basic data on those in the Phoenix Project. Anything more in-depth than that will have to be cleared by the Shadow Council. Castro nodded. It wasn't everything he wanted, but it was a start. Danielle turned to Chang. Give him access to level one data on all citizens. Send the authentication code to me and I'll clear it. Chang said nothing as she typed rapidly on her console. A blue screen flashed. The engineer typed again and closed out the screen, returning her attention to her other duties. Thank you kindly. Castro flashed a smile. Major Leonard McGillicuddy found his commanding officer, Colonel Dana Marsh, as she was returning to the Phoenix Law Division's headquarters on the upper levels of the project. Colonel, Cuddy called out as he approached. Dana! Marsh turned abruptly to face her subordinate. Where the hell have you been? Cuddy stood near Marsh, holding open the glass door to their office space. You know where I've been, Cuddy said, his brow furrowed. The older law enforcement officer pushed Cuddy slightly. What's this? Her fingertips touched the small incision marks in the major's scalp. Cuddy sighed. That's where the machine ports into our brains. My God. Marsh shook her head as she led the way through the doors into the offices. It's true. All of it. Cuddy nodded. My office, Marsh said. Cuddy followed. So, you heard? Marsh said, walking into her glass-walled office. She motioned for the Major to take a seat. I want to hear it from you, Cuddy said. Colonel Marsh pressed a button under her desk. The transparent fiberglass walls quickly frosted over. Cuddy and Marsh couldn't be seen or heard from those outside the office. The lieutenant and corporal went off the grid, Marsh said. She took a seat behind her curved, cream-colored desk. Something about it reminded Cuddy of the porcelainization coffins. They did a recon of the squalor, Marsh continued. Excessive force, to be sure. Rounded up every unauthorized prowl that didn't flee back down below. 
Cuddy's posture was perfect, but his head tilted slightly to gaze down at his superior officer, trying to ascertain her demeanor. I never authorized or ordered anything like that, he said. Of course not. You think I did? The colonel shot back. Still, they're your command, Cuddy, and it's my ass on the line. Cuddy was used to speaking candidly with Marsh. After his parents passed away, the colonel, then a major, recruited him into the law division. She was more than a respected leader. He loved her like a mother, the only confidant or friend who saw him at his most vulnerable. I'll talk to them, Cuddy assured her. I'll beat some sense into them. Marsh shook her head. I took them off duty, Cuddy. Cuddy's eyes narrowed. Look, Colonel, I understand you've got to do something. But the lieutenant is a watch commander. If I'm away on this assignment in the lab, he's the next in command. The men will follow him. Not anymore. Marsh's words were direct, implying Cuddy was responsible. He was the one being punished. I need you back, Cuddy. Colonel Marsh stood. Colonel, I... Respectfully, I can't do that. Marsh raised a thick eyebrow. What's that, Major? She walked around the desk, leaning in front of Cuddy. Dana, you know about what we're doing down there. You have connections on the council. This work is important. I can't stop now. They need me. If we're unsuccessful, this, the Phoenix Project, none of it will matter. Marsh shrugged dismissively with her whole body. And if we aren't successful at controlling the population here, your mission won't matter. If that bitch from the cafeteria and her cadre from the lower decks force our hands, we'll be outnumbered. There will be anarchy. Cuddy bristled. The Major's use of the word seemed alarmist. Anarchy, he said, while thinking of his fellow explorer, John Bath, a self-professed anarcho-syndicalist. Do you understand? Marsh said, leaning close to her subordinate. Despite being almost a foot shorter than Cuddy, he never ceased to find her capable, imposing. Colonel, <clears throat> permission to speak freely? Oh, come off it, Cuddy. We're like family. The Major didn't turn to face Marsh as she walked around him. Our security forces are meant to protect the population, not control them. Marsh scoffed. <laughs> What's that supposed to mean? Cuddy wasn't sure if she was intentionally pushing him, trying to irritate him, force a conflict of some kind. She had done it before, but that was when they were in the gym sparring, or when she was encouraging him in an active investigation. This felt different. Cuddy continued. You said, if we aren't successful at controlling the population, Marsh interrupted, annoyed. I know what I said, damn it. Don't repeat back to me my, yes ma'am, and don't interrupt me. You know who you remind me of? Marsh asked Cuddy as she came around his other side to face him. Damn it, Cuddy. You're just like your father. He was my commander, you know. He trained me. He... Colonel Marsh's voice trailed off for a moment. It was obvious she remembered Cuddy's father fondly. He was complicated too, she said. I admired him, and he trusted me. We made promises to each other, took oaths that we couldn't keep. We do the best we can, Colonel, Cuddy said. Marsh scoffed again. <laughs> That's right, 
And I'm telling you, Cuddy, I'm asking you to trust me. We all have our calling, and yours is here. She reached up to squeeze the Major's shoulder. We weren't meant for that world, you understand? This is all there is for us. This is all there ever was. Selected by the Central Processor to protect the Phoenix Project, to keep order, to ensure that one day the best and brightest citizens like your Dr. Ganaya and Chang and Bath would breed loyal citizens. Colonel Marsh let go of Cuddy's shoulder. Her face went blank. She turned away. Only the elite were ever meant to go back, Cuddy. Not you, not me. They would go home. Cuddy watched Colonel Marsh walk to the opaque wall. Her eyes seemed to glint, staring at the frosted glass that revealed no reflection. In the meantime, this is our charge. Our sworn duty, Cuddy. She turned back to face the younger man. It was never supposed to be us. It's never going to be us. And the sooner you get that through your thick, complicated, pinpricked skull, the sooner we can go back to work. Confused, Cuddy nodded reluctantly. Yes, ma'am. He pivoted on one foot. That is all, Marsh said, dismissing him. In a corner of the Phoenix Project's common area, Harumi Gale sat across from Dr. John Bath. She knew he was angry about the situation with Mike and Mindy, but couldn't help but notice her mentor also looked pale. He refused food. You're shaking, Harumi reached between them, her hands on top of John's. It's going to be all right, she tried consoling him. After a long silence, John looked up from the plate of uneaten food near his elbow. You don't know that. Fine, Harumi said. She couldn't help but wonder what Bath would think if he knew that only hours earlier she was in his quarters. There, Harumi made a deal with the man Bath saw her speaking to in the hall. Gabriel Princip was a member of the Phoenix Law Division Diagnostics and Programming Section. Princip claimed to be aligned with the dissidents, using his position in law enforcement to protect disparate voices like John Bath's. He was handsome, persuasive, and knew all about John's secret mission in the laboratory, exploring the surface of Earth. Gabriel offered to help Harumi protect John, to provide useful information in return for access to John's secret blue and brown notebooks in which he recorded his research theories and ideas. It's something else, Harumi said, matter-of-factly, isn't it? Of course, John looked up, eyebrows raised. Retreating from his most capable student was useless. You know. Harumi nodded. Yes. She stroked the back of his hand. He didn't resist or pull away. Tell me. I mean, John. You know you can tell me. Bath's eyes glanced around the room, but his body didn't move. I recently had some opportunity to read some literature from... from before the fall. Mostly novels, crime, romance. The central processor let you have access to that stuff? Harumi looked confused. I thought with the force limitations on its memory, John pulled away slightly, his back erect. How do you know about that? He asked, then looked down at their hands held together between them. Harumi smiled and responded to Bath's question with one of her own. How did you get a hold of those books? Bath lifted his hand from hers, 
tried to make withdrawing look casual. Well, it seems the 20th and 21st century culture was consumed, obsessed with sex, crime, politics, and sports. You knew that, Harumi nodded knowingly. Bath had taken her into his confidence about the special exploratory operation to the surface, but insisted they minimize exposure, what they said in public. And you're surprised because... I mean in a totally unhealthy way, Bath said. They were transfixed by personal gratification, murder, greed, ambition. While Bath was well-versed in history, philosophy, and anthropology, Harumi felt her teacher often revealed an odd naivete when it came to his analysis of culture. You're the one who turned me on to objectivism, John, Harumi pointed out. I've always thought your inclusion of the philosophy of selfishness was something of a contradiction in comparison to anarchism, but, irritated, Bath interjected. As a worldview, he said, green eyes wide and glinting. Like Nietzsche's philosophy, it's a way of thinking, stimulating thought, not a way of life. Harumi shook her head. Let's be honest. We've always been honest with one another, right? Yeah. Bath debated whether he should reach out to her again. Did he feel vulnerable? Or in his anger, frustration, was he defending himself against that feeling? Right, he said, obviously distracted. You've modeled your life, your lectures, and your practice around an outwardly anarchal defiance of the system, Harumi said, but a devotion to self-interest. Bath nodded. As a means toward self-preservation, yes, but not for self-gratification. Fine. Then what's got you so upset? Since she was a teenager at the academy studying under Dr. Bath, Harumi Gale had always been intrigued by her teacher's intellect. What others saw as arrogance, she saw as assuredness, confidence. She admired the way John presented seemingly contradictory belief systems, forced his students to reconcile them, let them tear apart his ideas in presentation and on paper. His sense of grace enthused them in public, and then, in private, over drinks or while analyzing some logic or linguistics problem, John opened up, told the students what he really believed. Usually that meant taking them into his confidence, insisting the psychological tension and physical demands of life in the Phoenix Project were doomed to failure. We are the dead, he would say, sometimes repeating himself over and over in an almost poetic, however distant, way. It was this side of John Bath that Harumi Gale loved. It was this man that she wanted desperately to love her back, but it was an unspoken rule that neither was going to go there, not verbally, not physically. Bath continued, I always assumed the cause of the destruction of the world was pure political, social, and economic instability, proliferation of weapons of destruction, an unused weapon is useless to those who desire the power that comes with building, supplying, and selling them. Random but purposeful acts of violence in the name of a cause. Maybe I was... Bath didn't finish his characterization of himself. I never imagined that the instability of culture itself, not the failure of governments, was responsible for the fall. And yet... Harumi's tone was measured designed to continue challenging John until he worked through the problem, came to some revelation. You champion the needs, the rights, the responsibility of individuals. 
Why do you care so much about society all of a sudden? What's changed? Bath swallowed hard. It's all... mixed up here. He pointed at the table. I can't process it, analyze it, understand or make sense of it. Not right now with all of this going on. But our ancestors were ruled by their passions. It's reflected in their art, their habits, their actions. Arumi raised an eyebrow. What's wrong with passion, John? The impetus for great art. Bath nodded. And ambition, murder, devastation. Hmm. Harumi shrugged, then took a chance. She placed both hands on the table. That's what I admire about you. Honest to a fault. Both in your longing for the truth and your abject dread for what it might actually mean. John gazed at Harumi's hands, always impressed by their slender elegance. Stop that, he demanded, without meeting her eyes. What? Harumi grinned coyishly. I'm not doing anything. I know what you're doing, damn it. You like that I challenge you, she said. You need someone to challenge you. Yes. John thought of his roommate, Mike Helms, and Dean Catherine Rand. His two longest, closest relationships were totally different. While Rand had been a mentor and a lover, she influenced John intellectually. It was Mike who impressed John morally, made him a better person. John considered his students at the academy. Most came and went, and few other than Harumi made a lasting impact on him. Now, he was working with General Benjamin Castro, Major Leonard McGillicuddy, Danielle Devenu, Miro Ganaya, and Donna Chang in a secret mission to the surface of the planet. They were colleagues, counterparts who challenged each other as the assignment demanded. But were they friends? Yeah, John gazed at Harumi's hands before him, an olive branch of sorts. I do need you to challenge me, he glanced around. We have to challenge all of this. Harumi. What if we were able to go back to the surface, and there was nothing there worth saving? No culture or pillars of institutions worth rebuilding? Harumi let her smooth hands fall back into John's. Her thoughts retreated briefly to Gabriel Princip, their search of John's apartment for the journals and notebooks. Princip took the books with him, promising to return them. After a long pause, Harumi asked, John, does this have to do with your father? Bath shrugged slightly. What if what was left was the same as... as when we left? What if when we went back to the surface and the people of the Phoenix Project and the survivors never learned from history, their old ways, their preoccupations with lust and killing, rivalries for wealth and power... Spoken like a true anarcho-syndicalist, Harumi grinned, showing her teeth. You've always cautioned against believing the Phoenix Project was the science project that would rehabilitate the human race. Bath remained quiet, his expression serious. Well, Harumi looked down at their hands held together, then back up at Bath's green eyes. If you're asking, would I go back to the surface and become a hermit? Hide under a rock? No, John interjected. I'm saying, if we went back, what's to prevent it from happening all over again? Us against them, 
culture wars, race conflict, class warfare. Thomas Huxley's survival of the fittest, Harumi said. How can we have evolved beyond our own nature? I wanted to believe we were beyond these same old nature versus nurture arguments, Bass said. Harumi laughed, her hands pulling away slightly. Not in the Phoenix Project. Exactly, John implored. Must we replicate the dysfunctions of, of what's now starting to break out here in the project? <sighs> if I went back, Harumi said, looking around, wondering if Maricela Santiago had returned to her position in the cafeteria. Hypothetically, I wouldn't let that happen. We're intellectuals, John. A new world would need us, our knowledge, our leadership. We would set things on the right path. We would make things right by improving on what remains and make sustainable a progressive vision that eradicates the power-hungry and limits control of wanton bureaucrats. John's eyebrows arched. What do you mean, eradicates? I mean, as much as we know the computer and the Shadow Council are supposed to serve our interest, but they both are flawed. Harumi glanced overhead at the rotating cameras in the common area. She knew she and John were positioned just so their lips were unreadable. We are now expected to serve them. They control because they can't create anything. A system like that must be... It must be destroyed. Harumi felt a shiver through John's hands, watched his forearms tense. She thought again about Gabriel Princip, his role in the Law Division. Harumi was eager to determine if Gabriel could be trusted... Useful. Manipulated. Did you ever stop to think the Central Processor and the Shadow Council aren't the only ones watching? Listening? She asked Bath. What? What do you mean? Harumi guided John's hand to her cheek. It's like you've always said. Let them listen, John. She turned her lips to the back of his hand. Let them listen and learn. There are others who have got your back. While the others attended to their routines, General Castro slept in the laboratory. He awoke to the sound of Donna Chang working, tapping away at her computer station. The engineer nibbled food and sipped coffee at her elbow. Castro breathed deeply. He retrieved the hard copy personnel file on Dr. Ganaya that lay nearby. The data was tediously surface level, but informative nonetheless. Dr. Miral Ganaya had been first in her class at the medical academy. Her promotion to her current position was swift and assured. There were no major personality flags or criminal incidents of any kind. She was, it seemed, a model citizen. The general's finger traced down the page. Miral never married, and though she was cleared for procreation by the central processor, she had no children. Kasher wondered why then noted her age. Despite Meryl's warm complexion and youthful appearance, she had been born in 2067, the year the survivors, including her mother, went underground. Meryl's mother must have been pregnant when she went underground, and Meryl must have been one of the first, if not the first, child born in the Phoenix Project. Without knowing why, Castro felt his heart race, his breath become ragged. No, he thought couldn't be. Kanaya's face, her demeanor, were too familiar, and the pendant she wore under her hospital scrubs, 
had reminded him of... Castro frantically searched Ganaya's file. Photos were scarce. Academy pictures, mostly. Identification profiles. Then, he came across an image of Ganaya's medical academy graduation, her mother standing proudly at her side. As if he was in his simulacrum, mechanical eyes scrolling, focusing, Castro zoomed in on the jewel hanging between Ganaya's mother's gorgeous clavicles. Castro dropped the file and clutched his chest. Through shivers of shattered memory, the after-effects of cryonic preservation and maturity, Castro recalled Ganaya's mother. Adnan Ganaya was the Iranian ambassador to the United Nations and the sworn enemy of Israel. Worse, he was a monster, a public bully and private sadist. His wife was little more than a concubine and slave, trapped in a hideous mockery of marriage. Castro remembered their first meeting at a diplomatic dinner, where, of all people, Dr. Bath's mother introduced them. He remembered their first kiss, when she retreated to him, of all people, for solace. He flashed on her perfumed figure beside him, her exposed body beneath him. He remembered killing her husband. Despite the paralysis of his lower limbs, Castro leaned back in the hammock with the full weight of the century since his own birth laid upon him, the full weight of the knowledge that Meryl Ganaya was most certainly his daughter. Castro swallowed hard, trying to push this recent revelation from his mind. It would do no good to dwell on it now. He leaned forward in his hammock and pulled the nearby wheelchair to him. Here, Chang walked towards Castro. Let me help you with that. Thank you, he said, as Chang hoisted him into the wheelchair. The short woman was stronger than she appeared. You're welcome, she said, guiding the elderly man into the chair. As Castro wheeled himself over to a weight bench, Chang returned to her workstation. The laboratory doors opened, and Danielle Devenu entered the room. The general lifted two 25-pound weights from the bench. He curled them, flexing his biceps. Without turning to the project administrator, the general spoke to Devenu as if they were in the middle of an unfinished conversation. You know, Castro told her, as the intermediary between this mission and your council, you have to clean this up. What? Devenu hovered between Chang and the conference table. She looked much more polished, put together than she did earlier. As she often did, Devenu wore a colorful, form-fitting jumpsuit and makeup which accentuated her beautiful, discernibly French features. On the surface, Castro explained, I'm a capable commander. Here, he groaned, alternating repetitions with the weights. You're responsible for mediating what happens between McGillicuddy and Bath. Devenu walked over to the general. What do you suggest? Castro returned the weights to their stand. He looked up at the lovely young woman. Bath's difficult, but he's not one of those dissidents. You don't know that, Chang mumbled without looking at the others. Castro ignored the engineer. And for all of Bath's protestations, Cuddy's no fascist. He may be eager for action, but he's disciplined. Devenu stood with hands on hips. I'm not responsible for what they do in their... in their private lives. Castro flashed a handsome grin. <laughs> From what I hear, in the Phoenix Project, there's no such thing as a private life. Not where your central processor and shadow council are concerned. 
Devenu's sculpted eyebrows lowered, but her posture relaxed. What are you suggesting? Kasher rolled the wheelchair closer, then paused. If you expect this mission to succeed, you have to find a way to smooth things over for them. Bath's ideological and loyal to his friends, and Cuddy feels an intense sense of duty. But whatever's going on up there, Kasher looked at the high ceiling of the laboratory, is a distraction. It will pull them away from this mission, and put them at odds with each other. I know, Daniel nodded. I understand. Castro patted her on the arm. Good. Then you'll take care of it. The general braced his hands on the tires of the wheelchair. He rolled himself over to the conference table. Danielle turned. So what do you recommend? Soldiers can be drafted, but they will only serve if they believe in the cause, Castro said. I think in this case, it would go a long way if we, all of us, yourself included, knew more about why we were chosen about the purpose of this mission, the expectations of the Council, and who we serve. Devenu spoke to the General's back. The Central Processor and the Shadow Council... Castro waved a hand. Yes, yes, yes. They were designed to make decisions for the citizens under their own anonymity, a terrible means and authority for determining the goals and objectives of a military operation. I never said this was a military mission, Devenu shot back. Castro looked over his shoulder. Did your Shadow Council ever say it wasn't? <laughs> I may be a man out of time, but just like your blessed computer and all this wonderful technology, I'm adaptable. Castro wheeled himself around to face the project administrator. Devenu walked to the table. Let me think about it, she said, sincerely. Fair enough, Castro replied. Now, the general glanced at Chang, then up at Devenu. Let's figure out how I'm going to pour it back in and get the hell out of that pit. Aftermath, a fire pit creative group production based on a story created by Rhett Davis, with characters created by Rhett Davis, Warren Davis, Willem DeGrieff, and Cole Hoopengarner. Original script by Warren Davis, with Cole Hoopengarner, and Willem DeGrieff. Narrated and produced by Cole Hoopengarner, with music by Warren Davis. Links to the sound effects used for Aftermath can be found in the description section of each episode. Aftermath and its story and characters are copyright 2019 by Fire Pit Creative Group.